KYRS, Medical Lake, Spokane, 88.1 and 92.3 FM. Listening to Ceasefire Now, KYRS, Thin Air Public Radio. concerned about the slums down here and his children who can't eat three square meals a day. It's all right to talk about the new Jerusalem, but one day God's preacher must talk about the new New York, the new Atlanta, the new Philadelphia, the new Los Angeles, the new Memphis, Tennessee. This is what we have to do. Now, the other thing we'll have to do is this. Always anchor our external direct action with the power of economic withdrawal. Now, we are poor people. Individually, we are poor when you compare us with white society in America. We are poor. Never stop and forget that collectively, that means all of us together, collectively we are richer than all the nations in the world with the exception of nine. Did you ever think about that? After you leave the United States, Soviet Russia, Great Britain, West Germany, France, and I can name others, the American Negro collectively is richer than most nations of the world. We have an annual income of more than $30 billion a year, which is more than all of the exports of the United States and more than the national budget of Canada. Did you know that? That's power right there if we know how to pool it. This is KYRS, Thin Air Community Radio. Welcome to Ceasefire Now, where we focus on political conflicts and wars throughout the world from the position of responsibility for U.S. imperialism. I am your host, Russell Webster. Today I'm joined by local activists Barb Steuben and data scientist Ed Burns from Eastern Washington University for discussion on Palestine and other topics. But first, some updates. The U.S. is providing Israel with at least $10.7 million per day for its war on Palestine. Israel is holding 7,360 Palestinians hostage in prisons without charges. Many are children. U.N. Special Rapporteur for the Occupied Palestinian Territories, Francesca Albanese, says, I quote, 
I never thought we would witness mass starvation of these proportions used in the 21st century. Yet here it is in Gaza. After 100 days of bombing, with insufficient food, fuel, and water allowed in, children are dying first, adults will follow before our eyes. The quote continues, Euromed Monitor has documented shocking testimonies of the Israeli army killing and injuring dozens of Palestinians on Thursday, 11 January 2024 on Al-Rashid Street in the West Gaza City, who were trying to receive humanitarian aid. According to the testimonies, Israeli quadcopter drones opened fire on Palestinians who had gathered to receive flour brought by UN trucks. 50 Palestinians were killed and dozens more were injured during the incident. While the U.S. makes symbolic gestures for increases in aid, while at the same time providing the means for the war, Prime Minister of Israel Netanyahu says flatly, there is no humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Another quote, since Israel's military ground offensive started on 27 October, Approximately 22% of agricultural land, including orchards, greenhouses, and farmland in northern Gaza has been raised by Israeli forces. Israel has reportedly destroyed approximately 70% of Gaza's fishing fleet. U.S. Israel have killed at least 24,804 Palestinians since October 7th, 2023. U.S.-Israel have killed 35,391 Palestinians since September 2000. The excerpt you heard earlier is from Martin Luther King Jr.'s last speech, April 3, 1968. He was helping the Memphis African-American sanitation workers and their demands for better working conditions and a livable wage. This is a quote from uh, Stanford University's MLK Institute. The quote, The union, which had been granted a charter by AFSME in 1964, had attempted a strike in 1966, but failed in large part because workers were unable to arouse the support of Memphis's religious uh, community or middle class. Conditions for black sanitation workers worsened when Henry Loeb became mayor in January 1968. Loeb refused to take dilapidated trucks out of service or pay overtime when men were forced to work late-night shifts. Sanitation workers earned wages so low that many were on welfare and hundreds relied on food stamps to feed their families. MLK Day was established as a a national holiday uh, in remembrance of Martin Luther King Jr., uh, his civil rights legacy, and his dream. This uh, was first recognized in 1986. The holiday continues to be contentious as U.S. cities and states refuse to observe it. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated the day after he gave that speech in which he began to address global uh, crises with the war in Vietnam and with poor people throughout the world, especially African Americans within the United States. He remarked that by pooling African American uh, money, essentially, it constitutes uh, a a source of power and uh, a way to perhaps continue to activate politically, as was uh, the case in the decades that preceded his assassination. Well, welcome to Ceasefire Now. I have uh, with me a special guest who has, um, I've been able to watch her do some amazing things recently, but I will let Barb uh, introduce uh, themselves and tell you uh, more about what's going on. How you doing, Barb? Thanks. Um, Yeah, I um, am a member of the Unitarian Church here in Spokane, and we have a group called the Unitarian Universalists for Justice in the Middle East. And we have been working with the Inland Northwest Coalition for Palestine Liberation on creating a film series. We're calling it Experience Palestine. 
and it starts next week on um, January 28th at 4 o'clock at the Unitarian Church. I know, so quickly. Um, We are going to be showing on the 28th a film called 1948, Creation and Catastrophe. Um, That film is uh, full of first-person perspective stories about Israel and Palestine, um, the finding and ending. Um, It includes um, interviews with uh, veterans, um, refugees, survivors, and historians. Um, It was produced in, I want to say, the mid-2000-teens. and um, is a really nice, like, historical grounding in the founding of Israel and the Nakba in Palestine. So um, we thought that would be a great movie to start with because a lot of people just don't have that background information. Yeah. I didn't learn it when I was in school. Um, and so I think it's a good way to start, kind of getting everybody on the same page, understanding from both Israeli and Palestinian perspectives about what happened actually in 1948. Awesome. So I definitely want to get into talking about the films, all of the films that are going to be a part of this festival. I know you have also have a surprise uh, film that, that there was a story behind that to talk about. But before we get into the, uh, the information on the film festival, I just want to introduce the audience to um, who you are. Okay. Um, I, I hope to have you back on a future date. So sure. uh, we might as well establish, um, you know, who you are. Okay. Uh, I, I'm really interested to know about how you became conscious of the occupation in Palestine and and, and your journey in that. And, and I'll let you describe that. Yeah, sure. No problem. Um, I was a, I call it an accidental tourist to Israel-Palestine. My daughter was studying abroad in Jordan in 2015, I think it was. Um, And I decided to go over and visit her at the end of her thing. And we would travel Jordan and Egypt. And I was super excited to go to the pyramids and learn about the Middle East. And I was thinking about it. And if I'm going to go all that way, I should probably go to Israel. I'm, I'm not Christian. I'm not Muslim. I'm not Jewish. But, you know, it is sort of like the center of modern religion for a lot of people. So um, I said, okay, my daughter said, sure. And so we went to Israel, Palestine um, that winter, Hmm. um, did uh, stayed at a youth hostel in Jerusalem, did a couple of like tours with the youth hostel and we couldn't get on the tour to Bethlehem. It was sold out. And so Hmm. the youth hostel said, just take a, take the bus down. You'll be fine. Take the bus down. You go to the church and do the Bethlehem thing and I got out of the bus in Bethlehem and there was a big wall across the street I grew Mm. up in Baltimore so there's a huge prison in downtown with this big wall and I'm like wow there must be a prison right here Mm. that's a huge wall and it just kept going and going and Mm. going and I had no idea that there was actually a wall that went along the West Bank Um, so just like wrapping my head around like this isn't a prison I mean it is a prison but it's not a prison like it's not meant to be a prison it's meant to be this wall of safety separation kind of thing Mm -hmm. kind of blew my mind so what if you can like remember so around 2015 ish before before you went to uh on this trip Mm -hmm. sort of what your thinking was about um Palestine, like in terms in relation to Israel, or like if somebody mentioned Palestine to you, oh, you know, what do you think about Palestine or anything? What what would even like enter your mind? Do you think I knew nothing about Palestine? Okay, I knew nothing. I was ten in seventy two when the Olympics happened and the whole Munich thing happened. Mm-hmm. That is what I equated Palestine with. Okay, same same here. I think in my uh, it was it was roughly around that time when I started to become conscious because I was. Uh, involved with Black Lives Matter protests and things like that. So I was constantly, uh, so I was searching for like, you know, understanding and things like that. But that's sort of when I became conscious of it by it, it uh, being con- uh, the Palestinian activists connecting with Black Lives Matter activists mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. that, and then me sort of following that thread there. But in terms of like, if somebody asked me about Palestine or what I thought about it, 
I would, I don't think I would have had the faintest idea. Yeah. I wouldn't even been able to point to it on a map. That's how sad, that's how like cut off we no, are. Like, absolutely, absolutely. And so then after that day in Bethlehem, um, we went to Hebron on a dual narrative tour. So like the first part of the day was with a, a Jewish person, Israeli mm-hmm. person, and the second day of the day was with a Palestinian person. So okay. we got to kind of do both sides of Hebron. And that day changed my life. Hmm. Um, some things happened on that day and it's too long of a story, but I will do it in a teach-in for um, the coalition at some point. Um, What's that coalition? The Inland Northwest Coalition for Palestinian Liberation. Right on, yeah. That's where I met you (laughs) recently, yeah. Um, And uh, everyone that went on that trip, I mean, we still talk to each other occasionally on Facebook Um, it was a life-changing experience. And so I came home from that going, I need to learn more. I need to educate myself. And that's really when I started working on like learning about Palestine. Okay. Read the lemon tree, um, came home, uh, went to my church and I didn't even know it, but there was this UUJME group at the church already that was doing things about Palestine. Okay. So got connected with them. And uh, they gave me a lot of education and mentoring, and that really, really helped uh, me kind of just open my heart and my mind to that there's a different perspective to the world. And then the Ferguson, uh, not Ferguson, but um, what's the guy in the whole Black Lives Matters? Oh, was it the George Floyd protest? Yeah, thank you. Because there were waves. Yes, yes. That whole thing kind of just like, blew up and then the Black Lives Matters thing. And I run a uh, another organization in town called Meaningful Movies. And we did mm. like a six movie series on um, films about African-American challenges. And one of them was Whose Streets? Okay. And that's based on Ferguson. Um, and they, they really tie in the Palestinian aspect there. And um, I realized that those things were really intertwined, you know, the... Yeah. The saying that none of us are free until all of us are free. So, Absolutely. Um, that kind of uh, jumps on a question I was going to ask. Like, how, have you done this before? Okay, so let me let me first tell the audience what I saw. So we we started the the coalition uh, right after the war started in October, and uh, we started uh, meeting up and trying to figure out different things to do in the community, different ways we could be act- activists for. Uh, bringing attention to, to uh, the occupation, but also obviously ending the, the genocide in the present war as quickly as possible. So one of the ideas was this film festival that came out. I'm not sure exactly who's uh, who, who brought up the idea first, but the idea got brought up. And then I feel like the next thing I know... There's there's a film festival and it's done. And like all the movies are settled and it's been... Uh, organized and uh, it's on the calendar and there's dates and there's a place to have it and Barb I think Barb pretty much did it all but I'll let I'll let Barb uh, t- tell us about that process but also like how did you know how to do this and you have done this before yeah okay. yeah so like I said for um, the last um, five years I have worked with an organization called Meaningful Movies which mm. shows social justice documentaries, and then holds discussion afterwards. So this film series is sort of following that model. All the movies are free. Um, We want people to come and question and participate in conversation um, to try and affect change in the community, but also within ourselves. Okay. Um, And so I started uh, Meaningful Movies is a Northwest kind of organization. I think there's about 30 different little groups around the Northwest and into Nevada, um, Utah. And, um, and so, yeah, so through there, I learned how to like reach out to um, film distributors, get films, get rights, negotiate fees. Um, I knew since I'm a member of the church, um, that, I could use their facilities, so I knew I could get into there. We have shown movies at the Magic Lantern as well, uh, just a little more expensive. And uh, since this is kind of a grassroots thing right now, uh, trying to keep it as low budget as possible. So Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's another thing. Like, uh, Spokane is a very unique city, and it's um, 
in terms of the activists, you know, you find you find strange bedfellows. I don't know if that's a proper term, but you you end up you don't get to choose who who you're going to be marching with always, and uh, that's not really the most important part anyway. It's it's what you're marching for, and so for some people, it's strange that that this film festival is at a church. Mm-hmm. You know, for some people, didn't even just like that idea. But one thing I've learned is that, and that church in, in particular is. Uh, some of the most like, like revolutionary thinking people and like activities and events I, I I've experienced were at those churches and within the um, Spokane's religious community. So don't you know? Don't disregard them right away. But there's also another story behind that. You know, it's like it's not as though we don't want to show these movies. You know all over the place and at other theaters. But had, did you run into any like roadblocks when you were trying to get, you know, this, these, these movies shown? Um, well, we have, I have shown a couple of movies about Palestine over the last five years. And, um, there's a lot of pushback in Spokane when mm. you talk about Palestine. And so a lot of places are hesitant to have, um, Palestinian movies or Palestinian discussions because, um, you know, it's not something we know or are familiar with. And we are um, always, um, I think as Americans, uh, we really want to make sure that Jewish people are taken care of and are mm-hmm. safe because of what happened to the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so it's easy to get pushed back. Um, so it is not always easy to find places. I, we have shown them in other places, Um but mostly, even a couple of years ago in the church, there was a lot of pushback on us showing Occupation of the American Mind wow. um, with the, a greater community reaching out to our minister, writing really mean letters and threatening things. And wow. So um, it is not without caution that the church is aware of what they're doing, but also um, because it's the right thing to do, even if it's hard. Right, right. So... Uh I don't want to run out of time before we actually talk about the film. So you were, I, th- I think the first film was 1948, right? So you yes. talked about that. What, yes. what's the, what are the other films and sort of, if you could talk about why those films Absolutely. and the process of getting down to that and then the other surprise film. Okay. So yeah, there are a lot of really great films about Palestine. And so when I was putting together this um, group, I wanted Um, some diverse perspectives. So the first one is basically, like I said, a history. It's first-person stories. So actual people that fought in the war, Mm. um, actual people that were displaced, actual um, people that settled the land, um, and then some historians that also add some context and and, um, um, stuff. Uh, So very fact-based. Okay. Um, the next film is called Five Broken Cameras, and mm. it is a first-person narrative about a family in Berlin, um, which is in the West Bank, uh, from 2005 to 2010. In this particular family, they got a camera, a video camera, for the birth of their last child. Wow. And so it follows his first five years. In that same period of time, there is a settlement being built right near their town and in order to build the settlement there's a lot of destruction of their property and Mm. their olive trees and they put in the security fence that prohibits them to get to their trees and so it just is him filming the conflict and just kind of like his daily life and the life of his child okay um and so it's very very powerful it is um all about um the security fence and settlements and nonviolent. Um, protests and what happens when Palestinians try to protest nonviolently. Okay, so to to know what the five broken cameras is, you'll have to come see the movie. Yes, I'm, I'm not, not going to give you. the whole story away. What's the next movie? <laughs> the next movie is on February 11th, and it's called Al Hayam, MLK in Palestine. Mm. And so it follows five American singers that go to Palestine to be in a choir, um, a in a play about Martin Luther King. Mm. So there's a Stanford um, Martin Luther King scholar that wrote a play about Martin Luther King, and he brings these five Americans over to sing in the gospel choir while Palestinian people put on the play about Martin Luther King, and they travel around the West Bank putting on the play. Okay. Um, and so it's 
um, what I like about this film is you get to discover Palestine through someone else's eyes. So it really, you're seeing Palestine through the lens of these African-American singers. Okay, I'm going to have to take a short break, and then we're going to continue this conversation. KYRS, Thin Air Community Radio in Spokane, Washington. I'm your host, Russell Webster, and I've been discussing an upcoming film festival with uh, local activist Barb Steuben, and I've just, uh, uh, Ed Burns has just walked in, and he's going to join us on the show as well. He's a data scientist from Eastern Washington University. How are you doing, Ed? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me here today, Russell, and it's good to see you, Barb. Nice to see you too, Ed. So you, you two both know each other, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, we go back a long ways. We'll have to talk about that. But, Barb, so we were at, we, we talked about 1948, Al, Al Helm, Martin Luther King in Palestine, five bro- broken, cameras. broken cameras, and then where were we now? So the next film is on um, February 18th, and it is Imprisoning a Generation. And so it follows four kids in the West Bank and um, does a really nice job of kind of talking about what life was like in the West Bank. Um, This was also filmed in about 2011 to 2015 um, and really kind of explains the different areas of the West Bank, all the different rules that people have in the West Bank, Mm -hmm. and it follows the four kids um, that get arrested by the Israeli military police and their journey through the... um, military justice system that is under the rule of the people in the West Bank. So um, it's uh, heartbreaking to watch, uh, especially when I first uh, watched this film. I had kids that were that, not well, they were teens, um, to think of my teen being taken from my house in the middle of the night with there is nothing I can do about it and not knowing where they went or when I will see them again. It just broke my heart. Um, And to think that people live this way blows my mind. Um, so I think it's a really great film. Um, again, it explains when um, they had that ceasefire for a while and they did that prisoner exchange. They were talking about these kids from the West Bank that they That's were right. releasing, and these are those kids. So I think okay. this does a great job of explaining why these kids are in jail to be released. Okay. Um, and even though they released 300 kids that same week, they arrested 300 more. Wow. So they didn't really let, number-wise, anyone go. They let one group of kids go and took another group of kids in. Wow. Really so, symbolic then. Yeah. Um, and so it's. I love this movie because it puts names and faces to mm-hmm. kids so that you have a better understanding about that. And it does explain how the occupation and apartheid works in Israel and Palestine. Uh, goes through the different kinds of ID cards people have, where they can go, who gets to vote, all of that kind of stuff gets explained in that movie. So, okay, and then so there's a fifth movie. What was this? What was the story behind so that? So we always wanted to have um, the fifth movie. It was just um, a little bit harder to get because it's a new release. It just came out last summer. It is called Israelism, um, and uh, it has been selling out everywhere that it has been shown, and so we knew the church would be too small of a place, so we had to get the rights to the movie first, 
Okay. And then um, get a place. And I think we finally decided that we're going to show it at the Magic Lantern. And that's going to be on February 25th. Right on. You better get your tickets early for that one, I think, right? (laughs) Yes. Yes. Um, And that is a great movie because it really talks about the American experience. Mm. So it follows a young woman who was raised in a traditional upper middle class Jewish family, went to Jewish school, went to... Um, all through K through 12, went to Israel many times, went to Jewish camp, and just how this was, the Zionism was just a part of her life until she went to college and met some Palestinians and challenged her narrative. Um, And so it kind of follows her journey of discovery about what, who Palestinians are, what they are, why are they upset? Kind of like we talked about earlier, like it's all something we have to discover, and then we have to kind of deal with the learning process. Yeah, um, And so it, it follows her American journey. Um, so I think it's a really great film because we're all on that American journey. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Ed. So. Yeah. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. So we'll, we'll get back, we can get back to discussion on, on the films um, if, we can, if we can manage at the end. But I wanted to get into some of this data. Sure. Okay. So can you tell our audience shortly sort of who, who you are, how you became conscious of Palestine particularly, mm-hmm. like uh, the occupation of Palestine, and then maybe talk a little bit about uh, data science. Like a lot of people I think don't really understand like the, the terms and everything and what it means, and it's sort of mysterious to people. Sure, I've heard it talked about as like being the new oil. So in the sense that it's an extremely lucrative uh, industry in terms of data collection, and the ways in which data is used these days. So can you talk yeah. about uh, your experience with becoming conscious with Palestine and then how data works? Sure, sure. Thank um, you. So I be, first became conscious of what was going on with Palestine and with Israel um, when I was in high school. And I had, a, I had a friend who was Persian. Okay. And he started explaining to me the, uh, the amount of money that was going to Israel from the United States because mm. um, this was before the Iranian revolution mm-hmm. but there were a lot of things going on in Iran and he was trying to help me understand what was going on and he said that's why there's a lot of mistrust of, of the United States among people from Iran who are Persian because of this, fine, this very obvious alignment with Israel okay. um, but then I became more uh, I learned a lot more about Palestine when I was a graduate student. So, mm-hmm. so many years later, um, you know, I, I, I'm a, a social worker by training, but I then became uh, trained in statistics and research methods. And one of my closest colleagues was a fellow named Solomon Bader, and he's over at Howard University now. He was a year ahead of me in grad school, and was, was a bit of a mentor to me. Okay, and we would hang around and have lunch and things. And then he started explaining to me. Because I talked to him about the, the the financial support, and he says, "Yeah, well, the, the problems go deeper than that." And that's when he started explaining, like what what Barb was talking about the, the apartheid system. Mm-hmm. And so Solomon grew up in Gaza. Okay, that, that's where he that's where he grew up, and um, so he gave me some very first hand accounting of that, and it was really eye opening. Wow. And um, the other thing I had learned very early on is that in the United States political system, getting any traction for a political approach to maybe mitigating what we do with Israel. Uh, I've, I've never seen it gain ground. I'll talk a bit more about some of my reasons for continuing to think that later when I talk about the data. Okay. Um, I want to tell you, you know, data science is a very large area. Um, I'm a data analyst and statistician by, you know, through, through my training. And through my work at Eastern and also a little bit in the private sector with criminal justice reform. Mm. Um, and I'll take on projects if they, if they aim toward that. Okay. Um, but that's another conversation another day. Yeah. But um, In terms of the data, but, is it... In terms of it being such a politically charged uh, topic, mm-hmm. to say it, to say it uh, the least, is it hard to find data? Do you where do you where do you look and have you ran into okay. barriers? So I use the United Nations for data on the healthcare systems and on fatalities, 
And um, they're, they're trustworthy. A lot of their data comes from the Gaza Health Ministry or Gaza Health Authority. And they're like any other. They're like any other government's health authority. They're no different, really, than the, the Spokane Regional Health District. They have people who are public health experts who who gather these data. Mm-hmm. It's been very trying for them to gather data in the midst of, of living in a state of siege. Yeah. Um, but they still do it. So that's where I get data on dis- and um, and also the United Nations has a rather large refugee um, sheltering program, and so I get data from them. So when I talk about displacement, that's where that comes from. Um, interestingly, data about political contributions. When you I search in the Federal Elections Commission uh, website. Mm-hmm. That's a very that's a more difficult, and I kind of know my way around these things, and they're, they're pretty opaque. It takes a lot of digging. Um, well, luckily, there's an uh, there's another uh, public interest research group I'll mention later who who digs into that okay. on our behalf, and their data is very credible. Um, the, interestingly, that the funding that the foreign military assistance that goes to Israel is buried in the Department of Defense appropriations budgets. It's in their their budget. It comes through the appropriations bill. Uh, Again, the Department of Defense's um, website is opaque at best about this, though there's a group, a nonpartisan group called the Congressional Research Service. They actually are an arm of the federal government. They're nonpartisan. They're staffed by professionals, um, both policy analysts and and data scientists. And that's where I got my information about um, what's going on uh, as as far as uh, financial military support for Israel. Now, data science, I know you talked about it being the new oil. Mm -hmm. I want to separate that out. There's data science where they where it's a new oil. These are the folks that are involved in tracking internet activity, mm. tracking purchasing behavior. So that that's a type of data science, uh, sometimes referred to as big data. Mm. And that's used for more uh, commercial gain, financial okay. gain, where uh, the, the, the side I land on more is more around public interest research, um, where we look at available data sets. And some groups are, are much better and, and well supported to do that kind of digging in, but we look at data and, and for the for the interest of the public rather than for commercial interests. So that just gotcha. kind of two slices of data science, and I just want to be clear what what slice I land on. Yeah, absolutely. That's so, that's very important, and yeah. uh, that's that's why we need you to, <laughs> to clarify those things for us because I know that there is a lot of um, nasty stuff going out there with trying to manip- manipulate people with data and you know trying to get people to buy stuff, but also mm-hmm. just you know, even more sinister and trying to control, you know, what people think, you know, about things like Israel and, and what the United States is doing and things like that. But has there, has there, you, what have you been working on recently? What has really raised your eyebrows? Well, I've been keeping track of the United Nations data and I just want to share a few facts with our listeners. Um, so the data that I have is current up to January 15th, which was this Monday. Okay. And it's a hundred days from October 7th. So during that time, the Israeli Defense Forces have killed 24,285 civilians in Gaza. One thing that my friend Solomon taught me long ago was always have context. So let's put that into context. That's basically every day in Gaza, 243 civilians are killed by the Israeli Defense Forces. This also includes 7,528 children. So every day, 75 children are killed in Gaza by the Israeli Defense Forces. You know, Ed, I did some calculating a couple of weeks ago, and approximately 8,000 kids are in Spokane Public High School. Wow. Right. So that's every single high school kid in Spokane. And in a moment, I want to bring this to the context of, like, let's say an occupying force came to Spokane, what would these numbers look like? Um, I want to also talk for a minute about what I found, because I I monitor this on a weekly basis, and um, the Israeli Defense Forces have injured 61,000 civilians in Gaza. That's a huge number. Think about that. That would be 612 civilians a day. Say say that again, 61? 61,000 
61,154 civilians in Gaza have been injured in oh. attacks by the Israeli Defense Forces. So, um, I want to give this a little bit of context. So, if this was happening in Spokane, during the last 100 days, we would have had 5,800 of our neighbors killed including 1,800 children. Imagine if 1,800 children were killed here in Spokane by an occupying force. What? In fact, I wanted to pause for a minute and let our listeners, I'm just going to count off a few seconds, have our listeners absorb that for a minute. 5,800 of your neighbors, 1,800 of them children. switch that to injuries in the past hundred days there would have been 14,800 of our neighbors of our fellow Spokaneites uh, around Spokane this is on the basis of Spokane County that would have been injured so uh, you know I remember very early on Benjamin Netanyahu did this context with the United States like hey what if 4,000 people from the United States were killed mm-hmm. So I thought, well, context matters, but context applies to everybody and everything. And so this is what would happen. If you looked at the United States, there would have been 3.6 million civilians killed in the United States, including 1.1 million children and 9 million civilians injured. A daily basis, we would have had 36,000 people die every day for the last hundred days if we were suffering at the same rate that the people of Gaza were. And that would include 11,000 child deaths. So, uh, again, sometimes I have to just pause when I talk Mm -hmm. about this because it's just, it's so fast. I was just trying to just think of numbers in my head like that, like that's way more than any war like we've ever been involved, the United States has ever been involved. In. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Other than the other than the first, you know, the genocide of creating the United States, but right. in terms of the United States in, in like the twenty first, twentieth, nineteenth centuries, three over three million people. Right. I I can't really think of anything no. to compare it to. No. Yeah. So that's. I hope that gets folks thinking about this. Is what's happening to the people of Gaza. Um. And so when I do data, I, I don't like to just throw numbers around. I have to, what does this mean? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the Geneva Convention is very, very clear that we do not ever punish a population. Yet when I look at the extent of death and injury that's going on in Gaza, how else can I describe it? What else can I call it? So uh, the Israeli Defense Forces are clearly in direct violation of the, um, the Geneva Convention. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, it, by by the data alone, by the facts, it you can draw all sorts of conclusions. Like one of them is like, uh, you, they're, they're killing journalists. Oh, yeah. You know, like like they're they're not, it's not like, oh, there was just a journalist there and they, they, they died. It's like when you start to get to like 150 journalists and, and most right. definitely more than any war ever, you, you can't really come to any more con- uh, other conclusion than that, you know? Right. I know that our United States officials, uh, president, secretary of state say, oh, yeah, we're talking with Israel about being more careful about civilians. But that's not what's actually happening. Mm. That's not what's happening. You know, e- even... You know, in, in hospitals, you would think people would be safe in a healthcare facility. 573 either workers or patients who are they're all civilians have been killed in Gaza healthcare facilities, and 746 have been injured. It's an average of six deaths a day from Israeli attacks on healthcare facilities. Healthcare facilities, this is like where, where people are going for help. Great crimes. Massive crimes. It, it, the bombing of hospitals, attacking hospitals. Right. Since world, at least World War II has always been 
a major, uh, it was supposed to be a thing that we were all supposed to be conscious of and care about. And it seems as though Americans are just looking the other way. Right, and I'm going to dig into that in a little, in a little bit. Um, but so something I just want to point out when you talk about hospitals, Gaza, they have 2 million people living there. They have four fully functioning hospitals remaining. Hmm. They, they used to have a lot more. It's like a 90% reduction in hospitals. So not only are the people of Gaza being attacked violently with dangerous weapons that, that kill them and injure them, but the very places where they could get help are being destroyed. Yeah. And how long is it going to take to rebuild all this, too? They know, you know, they must know this as they're destroying it, that this is also going to be extremely difficult for the world to recover. Very, very. It's some of the most vast destruction that, that we've ever seen. And I keep bringing it to, you know, the number of, of occurrences each day because this is happening much more quickly than in, in any conflict that I'm aware of in any war or occupation or siege that I've ever been aware of. Um, and the residual effects. So we're, we're, we're already encountering mass sickness and starvation and mm-hmm. all, you know, name it, psychological trauma, all of those things are proliferating by the data. And then right. the, we have like the forecasted data, like what's going to come in the, the coming generations, how they're going to suffer from all Right. Well, all out. You know, I know one of the arguments that are made by the Israeli Defense Forces is that, you know, they're responding to terrorism. But when you displace, and my estimate of how many people are displaced is a little bit conservative, but when you displace 85% of a population, they're, they're actually creating cause for more of the very thing they say they're trying to fight. Yeah, that's well established. It's, a, it's an actual established fact, in, uh, fact in, uh, through, from the war on terror. Mm-hmm. That many studies have been done to show that that's exactly what's going to happen. If you're fighting, in quotes, if you're fighting terrorism with um, terrorism, you know, as Chomsky would say, is if you're using state terrorism to terrorize people, which I I saw the 1948, and that's what I saw in in that film was terrorism. Mm -hmm. So if you're terrorizing people, you're going to create more terrorism. That's just a truism. Right. And, you know, I, and I mentioned displacement, and I just want our listeners to get a bit of context about this displacement that's going on, because they're, like, okay, so 1.9 million Gazan civilians have been displaced by Israeli Defense Forces, and these are the ones that are really either living in or nearby United Nations shelters. Mm. So if, 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 if the same proportion of the U.S. population were displaced, there would be 286 million people. Mm. There would be 2.9 million people getting displaced every day in the United States. If if an occupying force came in and was doing that to us, we we would be screaming for the international community to, to, to condemn that. Yeah. Yet we're either actively or silently complicit in it as a government. Absolutely. You know, if we did the same proportion to Spokane County, in the last 100 days, there would have been 460,000 people displaced in the county. That's like the population of the city, almost. Yeah. Yeah. And that would be about 4,700 people per day being displaced. I can't even make sense out of most of these numbers. They're staggering. It's that vast. That, that, that's why I, I keep following this. This is why I speak about it. Is I don't think people understand, out in the general population, I don't think people understand just mm-hmm. how vast this is. That's, yeah, that's why this show is here, literally. Right. Like, people aren't getting this information. And, right. and, we are, and we're, we're, like, we're running out of time right now, Ed. Yeah. Is there any thing that you want the audience to hear before we we were off the air sure can i just you know i was wondering why are um 
our leaders so uh, either uh, actively promoting this or complicit in their silence. So since 1992, Senator Patty Murray has received $185,000 from pro-Israeli lobbyists. Maria Cantwell, since 2000, has received 134000 And Kathy McMorris-Rogers has received 137000 since uh, she was elected in 2004. That's, that's power. And one last thing I did find um, from the Federal Elections Commission is that um, APAC, the American-Israeli Public Affairs Committee, their political action committee, gave $3.8 million to various federal senators and uh, representatives in the month of November of 2023. They're really up How much was that again? $3.8 million. $3.8 million spread out over, you know, 100 senators and 535 members of Congress. So if you're wondering why our local senators um, and, and politicians aren't speaking up, this is a part of it. Yeah. And it has me thinking, like, like normal political approaches to solve this aren't the thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to need hundreds of thousands of people out in the street. Yeah. That's yeah, because this is where you're just talking about our area. This is throughout the United States. Oh yeah, if I showed you yeah. the United States data. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Ed. Well, I hope to have you back on soon. We're gonna. Oh yeah, we're gonna get get uh, into much more data. Um, Barb, would you please give us those dates again and any other sure. uh, local announcements? Sure, sure. The um, film festival or the film series Experience Palestine um, starts on January twenty eighth. And then runs four Sundays uh, from four to six. The first four films are at the Unitarian Universalist Church. um, And that's over by the Spokane Falls Community College. And the last film will be on uh, February 25th, Israelism at the Magic Lantern. Um, And then tonight we actually have a show at Berserk, a punk show. Um, we're going to have a table, the Inland Northwest Coalition for Palestinian Liberation. Cool. So if you want to check out any information about us, we'll have some flyers and stickers and uh, information for you out there. And then on February 17th, um, from 10 to 12, we're going to have a kite festival at the Hive, where we're going to make kites and talk about some Palestinian poets. Oh, that's super cool. And the kids can get involved, too. Yep. Well, thank you both so much for coming on. We ran out of time. It went so fast. It's all good. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you for listening to Ceasefire Now.